I want to thank God for the opportunity to come before his people to study from his word that we can show ourselves approved unto him. I'm going to be picking up where we left off last night. And last night we talked about the great importance of understanding what the finishing work is that God would have us to do in this generation. Because it's one thing to talk about the second coming of Jesus, but it's another thing to practically prepare for it. Amen? And we want to be God's foot soldiers that'll go forward and do the work and by the grace of God finish the work in this generation. And that which is impossible with man, I'm grateful that all things are possible with God. And so I want us to prepare our hearts as we go into phase two of our study, as we look into this idea, this concept of how God would have us to go forward that we actually could finish the work in this generation. As we prepare our hearts to do this, I'm going to invite you that as much as you can, if you would, please kneel with me. And if you cannot kneel, then just reverently bow your heads where you are, but let us approach the Lord in prayer at this time. Our Father in heaven, we desperately need to hear you speak to our hearts. Father, we're living in the time where there's so many rumblings of what man thinks. And yet, the still small voice of Jesus is seeking to reach and penetrate every heart that simply has ears to hear. Father, I pray tonight that you will still every distraction, whether it's the mental thought distractions in our minds, or whether it be anything else that would take place that would cause our minds to not be focused upon your word. Please forgive us, we pray, of our sins. And may you truly open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your law. For, Father, this is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You will remember that we saw last night that there's so much that a picture says. And when we looked at a very important picture last night, I asked you the question and I said, what does that picture mean? When you see an image like that, what, what comes to your mind? And the reason why I ask that question is because you'll find that the ultimate goal of Jesus is to get yours and my mind to be so much connected with his that we all can have the same thought when we see that picture. Christ is doing a finishing work in the heavenly sanctuary. But we saw yesterday from Leviticus 16 that there is no way that the sanctuary will be cleansed until God first has what kind of people on earth? What kind of people does God need to have on earth before he can cleanse the heavenly sanctuary? What did we find out yesterday? Did we forget that quickly? We saw that in order for the sanctuary to be cleansed, God must first have a clean people. Because the only reason the sanctuary got dirty and was in need of cleansing was because of what the people did to make it dirty. And that was none other than sin. And so we saw last night that the same way Jesus was focused on finishing the work when he was on the earth is the same way that he wants to finish the work through you and I while we are on the earth. 
And that finishing of the work we saw is none other than having Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? Now, there are several ways that an individual can look at Christ in us. When Christ is in an individual, that means that the experiences that he had should be the experiences that we have. Now, one of the experiences that we discussed in part last night is we talked about the fact that Jesus was tempted in all points, but he did not what? He didn't sin. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles with me, and we're going to go to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy, or rather 1 Peter, I apologize, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we find that it was also the experience not just for Jesus to have, but he left that experience for an example for you and I to see as well. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, and when you get there, please say amen. Now, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to consider here verses 21 and 22. The Bible says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us what? An example. It says, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Well, it begins to reveal his steps to us. And it says in the next verse, it says, who did no what? Who did no sin. It says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, the reason why I know that this was not an experience that was just simply limited to Jesus is because of what the Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter. Now, go to Revelation 14, and let's notice this. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, John, in wonderfully panoramic, prophetic view, he was able to see a people in the last days that you and I have every opportunity to be counted amongst that number. The Bible says in Revelation 14, starting right there at verse 1, it says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now the Bible begins to describe this group and notice what it says in verse 4 because you and I are to strive to be part of this group. It says in verse 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found what? No guile. Sounds like they had the same experience that we just read about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. In their mouth they had what? No guile. And so it is that you will find that the same way that Jesus left an experience for you and I that we can follow in that example by his power. You see, this can't be done by simple power. This can't be done by simple might. This can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you know to do, brothers and sisters, that is right and according to the will of God. God says, I have given you all the power in heaven that you can live up to that light. There will be no excuses for sin. There cannot be. Because if God, I remember I was at a church and I was teaching about the idea of victory over sin. And one of the things that I taught, and I, and I talked about victory over sin, and then, and then the pastor asked me to come to his office after the meeting. And when I came to his office, he tried to explain to me 
that Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but his interpretation of it is that all will keep sinning and come short of the glory of God. And I said, Pastor, and I, I said this respectfully to him, but I said, Pastor, I said, I just have one question to ask you. And he said, what's that? I said, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? And he looked at me funny, and I said, Pastor, I'm dead serious. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? He said, of course I am. I said, all right, then I'm going to let you know right now, you don't believe what you're saying. And he was saying, no, I know exactly what I'm saying. I said, Pastor, are you trying to tell me that mankind is going to keep sinning all the way up until Jesus bursts the clouds and comes down? You're telling me that mankind is going to keep sinning? And his answer was, yes. I said, can I tell you why you don't believe that, Pastor? He said, tell me why. I said, because Seventh-day Adventists believe in this ideology called the close of probation. That takes place when the declaration is made in Revelation 22:11, when Jesus says, let him who's filthy be filthy still, and let him who's holy be holy still. But the problem, Pastor, I told him is I said, when Jesus makes that statement, I said, does he immediately come? And the pastor said, mm, you know, he wasn't sure. I said, no, the answer is no. I said, once Jesus makes that statement, Revelation 15 and verse 8 kicks in, that there's smoke in the sanctuary and no man can stand inside of it. That means there's no longer an intercessor in the sanctuary once Jesus says, let him who's filthy be filthy still, let him who's holy be holy still. I said, are you following me so far, pastor? He said, yes, I am. I said, now, what takes place next, pastor? Revelation 16, verse 1, plagues begin to fall. When those plagues begin to fall, now Psalms 91 kicks in, where plagues are going to fall to the right hand and to the left, but it shall not come nigh thee, God's people. And I said, and when those plagues begin to fall, this is going to mark Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 5 through 7, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble. That means, Pastor, that there's going to be a bunch of God's people that's going to go through a major time of trouble while the plagues are falling, while there's no intercessor in the sanctuary. Now, Pastor, if you believe that mankind is literally going to keep sinning even at that point, then that means that either Matthew 1:21 is a lie when it says his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, and now I guess Matthew 121 should have been translated, he shall save his people in their sins. And if Jesus is going to come back and save people in their sins, guess who'll be the first person knocking on Jesus' door saying, you got to let me back in? His name is Satan. Because the only reason he got kicked out of heaven was because of sin. And if Jesus is going to let people practice sin and enter in heaven, then Jesus must let Satan back in himself. I said, Pastor, do you understand why I told you a seven-day Adventist could never believe that you're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes? And here ended that conversation. Brothers and sisters, my point is simple. Jesus wants to bring about an experience in yours and my heart. Do you know that you can actually love God even more than life? We have a whole bunch of people called martyrs that have proven that. They prefer to die than sin against God. Everything that they understood to be truth, they lived up to that light. And in the eyes of God, that was perfection. And that's why some of the most challenged people on planet Earth are going to be Seventh-day Adventists. You know why? Because we've been given the highest light. And God expects us to live up to every ray of light.
but I'm thankful that all God's biddings are also his enablings. I have learned to take that scripture that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, literally. You can. If God can give you victory over smoking, he can give you victory over fornication. And if God can give you victory over fornication, he can give you victory over cussing and swearing. And if God can give you victory over cussing and swearing, he can give you victory over a lustful appetite. Brothers and sisters, there is no sin that's too powerful for Jesus to give you victory over it. It is Satan's great sophistry to get God's people to believe that we cannot overcome. I pray that we do not believe Satan's sophistry. But brothers and sisters, if Christ is in us, then there's another thing that must be manifested. And I want to show you this from the book of the, Acts chapter 10. Go to Acts chapter 10 with me now. Because it is not enough for Christ to be in us simply to mean that we stop sinning against God. It's not enough, even though we know that this must be a reality and it can be your reality. There's more to it. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, if Jesus is in your heart, I want to show you what the Bible says. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, we're going to go ahead and consider verse 38, another dynamic about Jesus. The Bible says in Acts 10 and verse 38, it says this very clearly, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing what? Doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And so you find that while Jesus definitely resisted the devil, while Jesus was able to be tempted in all points, but he did not sin, there was more to the life of Jesus than just not sinning. Brothers and sisters, there's more to your life than just not sinning. The Bible says, cease to do evil, Isaiah 1, 16. But then it says in verse 17, learn to do good. Jesus did not just simply not do evil, but Jesus also learned to do good. And his whole life was a life demonstrating him doing good. I love reading Desire of Ages in that chapter as a child, that Jesus would just walk around and he would just always have a song upon his heart as a child. And it says that when Jesus would come into the presence of other people, that if they were down and gloomy, they would have no choice but to be cheered up when Jesus would walk by their path. You know how much, brothers and sisters, I want to have that effect on people? That just by the very fact that I'm present, that my countenance can cause others to be cheerful. Now watch this. When we look at Jesus, we can think of all sorts of things. He healed the sick. He fed those who are hungry. He clothed the naked. He did all sorts of works. But do you know that when Jesus came to this earth, there was four things that took place that made up his work. And I want you to see what these four things are because the same way that Christ came to this earth doing good is the same way God wants you in this earth to do good as well. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 9. The Bible says in Matthew, the ninth chapter, and I want you to consider this, Matthew chapter 9. When you get there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, I want you to notice what it says as we consider verse 35. When Jesus came, the Bible says, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues 
and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. The threefold work that we see that Jesus was doing is he had a ministry of preaching, teaching, healing. Jesus also had PTH ministries. If you really go by it, it's actually TPH. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was a preacher. And Jesus was a healer. But here's what's really interesting. Did Jesus, did Jesus preach the gospel? Yes, he did. But which one did Jesus do more of, preaching or teaching? Teaching. So did Jesus teach the gospel? Yes. Which one did Jesus do more of, teaching or healing? Healing. Isn't it amazing how in Adventism today, we seem to make the minor the major, when in Jesus, the major was the major. Most ministers today have no idea what the medical missionary work is. Did you know that God never asked us to even know medical missionaries? God wanted us to be medical missionaries. Volume 7 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 62, tells us very clearly that we have come to a time where every member of the church, is Ted Wilson a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? That means he needs to be a medical missionary. You want to know some good news? He is. If you're a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you are supposed to be a medical missionary. You're not supposed to know one, you're supposed to be one. Are you following? Now, when Jesus did his preaching, teaching, healing ministry, this made up the work that he did. He was a teacher, he was a preacher, and he was a healer. But I want to show you what happened as a result of his teaching, preaching, healing ministry. Go to the book of Mark chapter 5. Now, watch this one. In Mark, the fifth chapter, let me show you what took place as a result of Jesus doing his teaching, preaching, healing work. All right, I'm going to come back to that text because I got to find that one for you. When Jesus went about doing his teaching, preaching, healing work, Jesus also, the Bible lets us know that the work began to be published. The work started to become published. So as the people received the blessings from Jesus, they began to publish it and make it known to many others whom they came in contact with. So we find that as a result of the preaching, teaching, healing work of Jesus, that it ultimately brought out an experience in the people that they began to publish it amongst everyone that he came in contact with. So in truth, the teaching, preaching, healing work should also be combined with a publishing of the things that we have learned. That's a key point that I wanted to make to you. Now I want you to look at this because I want you to consider some things here. When we think about the work that God has called us to do, I want us to consider this. Do you know who this man is here? Do you know his name? Anyone knows his name? His name is George Mueller. How many of you ever heard of George Mueller? So you just didn't know what he looked like. Now, George Mueller, I believe with all of my heart, was a man of God. And I believe he did an absolutely incredible, awesome work. His work, how many of us know his work? What was his work? He would secure homes for all these precious little orphans. And he would begin to go ahead and admonish them and encourage them in the work and in the Lord. 
Now, George Mueller was used mightily by God, mightily by God. But brothers and sisters, do you know what Ellen White said in relation to George Mueller? Notice, God does not now lay upon his people the same work which was laid upon Mueller. It says very clearly in Evangelism 547, it says, Mueller did noble work, but God has given his people a work to do after a different plan. To them he has given a message for the whole world. They are to enter territory after territory and make aggressive warfare against soul-destroying sins. You see, while it is true that we can look at other people who have done all sorts of great work, now I'm going to let you know, it's not that we cannot take in an orphan in our homes. Because if you read the book Adventist Home, there's a whole chapter that deals with the fact of how to deal with those who are homeless, even orphans. And L.O.I. makes it very clear that we can go ahead and bring an orphan in our home. But this was a focus for George Mueller. That was his entire work, brothers and sisters, and we are not to imitate that work. It is possible to see a good work that is done by other organizations, but God may tell us, listen, while these good things are being done, God says that's not the work that I've called my people to focus on. God gave us a specific work, prophesy again. How many of you are familiar with this organization? You familiar with them? The Salvation Army. Are they good people? Brothers and sisters, they're not only good people, I believe many of them are godly people. The Salvation Army does absolutely incredible work, don't they? They do tremendous work. But the question is, is, is the Salvation Army's work our work? The Lord has marked out our way of working. As a people, we are not to imitate and fall in with Salvation Army methods. It says, this is not the work that the Lord has given us to do. It says, neither is it our work to condemn them and speak harsh words against them. Amen to that. It says, there are precious self-sacrificing souls in the Salvation Army. We are to treat them kindly. They are in the army honest souls who are sincerely serving the Lord and who will see greater light advancing to the acceptance of how much truth. All true. Let's notice what the quote says next now. It says, the Salvation Army workers are trying to save the neglected, downtrodden ones. Discourage them not. Let them do that class of work by their own methods and in their own way. But the Lord has plainly pointed out the work that Seventh-day Adventists are to do. Camp meetings and tent meetings are to be held. The truth for this time, that's called present truth, the truth for this time is to be proclaimed. A decided testimony is to be born, and the discourses are to be so simple that children can understand them. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that while we see all sorts of good works and good deeds and different things that are being done in this world, we can commend others for doing a good work. And in many respects, as we're being told, we are not to condemn them. We are not to treat them harshly, and we should deal with them kindly. But brothers and sisters, do not get distracted to the point that we begin thinking that, oh, their work is a model of what we should be doing, and then we go ahead and just simply try to imitate what they're doing. God has spoken plainly that we are to make aggressive warfare against the soul-destroying sins that are taking place in this world.
This is why, brothers and sisters, God saw it fit to tell us that a revival and a reformation is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. And this should be our first work. It's good that we can go ahead and do disaster relief, and we should do that. It is good that we can go ahead and help out orphans. We should do that. But when we allow these works to begin to put a shadow over the entire and the focus work that God has given us to do in this generation so that the work may be what? Finished. We must understand what God has called us to do specifically. So that in all of the work that we do of doing good to others, we must understand that ultimately the end result of doing good to others is to show them how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. And the only way to stand true to God during the investigative judgment is we must allow Jesus to be in us to give us victory over the debasing sins that's keeping us separated from him. Are you following? Are you following so far? Now, do you believe we need a revival and reformation, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that? Yes. Amen. You really believe that? Yes. Now, are, are you prepared for it? Yes. All right, let me ask you a question. If you really believe that we need a revival and reformation, here's my question. Where does, you know, reform means to change something, right? For, for it to be changed, it has to be reformed, right? Here's my question. What do you think is the first thing that needs to be reformed? We're talking about a revival reformation. What is the first thing you need, what is the first thing that you think needs to be reformed? Ourselves. How many say ourselves? Okay. Do you know that inspiration doesn't agree? Would you like to know the first area of reformation that needs to take place in God's church? And this is going to be a battle. But with God, all things are possible. You want to know the first area? Write this down. Volume 1 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 469. I want you to write that down. I contemplated putting it up on the screen, but I had no time. I said, let me just go ahead and tell you. Do you know what volume 1 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 469 says? It says, the work of reform must begin with the ministers. You got your iPads and your iPhones, pull it up, look it up, check the preacher. Volume 1, 469. It says the first work of reform must begin with who? The ministers. Why would reform need to begin with ministers? Why? Why? Go to John chapter 12. Let me show you why. You see, brothers and sisters, we can, the work can be finished. That's not an issue. But this is going to take cooperation from top down. We're all in this pool together. We all got to strengthen each other. We all got to sharpen each other. I want you to see what the Bible says in John chapter 12. 
Because I, I see people say, oh, we need revival and reformation. They have all these prayer meetings. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Prayer is very integral when it comes to revival and reformation. But even Steps to Christ under the chapter, the privilege of prayer says, if all we do is pray, we will cease praying. So it's going to take more than just prayer. We don't minimize prayer. We don't negate prayer. And we need to pray much. But brothers and sisters... It's going to take more than prayer to bring about a real revival and a real reformation. The Bible says in John chapter 12, let me show you something. Let me show you why God understood that it must start with the ministers. It makes sense. Look what the Bible says in John 12, and verse 42. The Bible says in John chapter 12 and verse 42, if you're there, say amen. The Bible says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. You know, it's talking about Jesus. Do you know many of the chief rulers believed on Jesus? But look at what the verse of the verse says. It says, many of the chief rulers, they also, many believed on him, but it says, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. It's possible that people can actually turn their back on Jesus because of top pressure. God understood this, and this is why God knows. Listen, when you're a leader, brothers and sisters, that means you got power. You have influence. I had to accept that. When I was ordained as an elder in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I understood clearly that I can't just do what I want to do because I know no matter how many times I tell the people, don't follow me, follow Jesus, guess what the people do? They follow me, and they follow you. It's a fact. It's human nature. Until a person really knows what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're going to follow other people. And therefore, God holds me accountable as a leader. I'm a leader, you know. I'm a minister, believe it or not. And God says, Dwayne, if you really want to reach my people, you need to understand that you first need to be changed. If I want to reach my children, brothers and sisters, it is not going to work if I tell my children, get up and have morning manna every morning, and here it is that daddy's just laid out asleep every morning. <laughs> not going to happen. Until the leader in the home reforms, there's not going to be a reformation in the home. And the church is an extension of the home. It's interesting how every home has roles. The father is the father, the mother is the mother, and they cannot interchange because God gave those roles in the home. Is that right? And the church is an extension of the home. That means that the church also has roles, and genders should not be confused. So it is. That Jesus brings to our attention and he makes it clear. He says, that's why it has to start with the leaders, because leaders have influence to either scatter or gather. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. It must begin with the leaders. It must begin with the ministers. And then it is easier for it to take place in the body. Are you following? Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I want us to take a look at this because I looked at our early success. I did some studies on this, and as I did some studies on our early success, I realized that if we could understand that not only must we have the experience that Jesus had, victory over sin, or for him it was victory over temptation, he never sinned. 
We must get victory. But in addition to that, Jesus went about doing good, and he did it by teaching, preaching, and healing, and eventually it was published. Now, if we are going to do the work like Jesus did it, then we must follow the pattern of success. Now, I want to give you just a little bit picture, a little bit of a picture of our early success. Did you know that early in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we had tremendous success when it came to all those things that brother, both of the, the Cho brothers have been sharing with us the other nights about serving and going out and touching communities and reaching people. You know this group right here? Seventh-day Baptists? Do you know that in early Adventism, we were such servants. And the minister and the laity were so in sync with God, and they worked in such intense harmony that so many souls were one to God's church and growing in God's church that the Seventh-day Baptist said, we must interview you and understand why you're so successful. When's the last time any denomination has knocked on our doors to say, we want to understand why you're so successful at what you do? This is what the Seventh-day Baptist said. All Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries, not located pastors. Do you know that if we are to see a reform take place in our ministers, I believe that this is a wonderful place to start. It says all Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries, not located pastors, and are busy preaching, teaching, and organizing churches the world over. Seventh-day Baptists, as they interviewed and looked at the Seventh-day Adventist church and was wondering how in the world do they have so much success, one of the reasons why was because none of our pastors were what we called settled or located pastors. And this was shown in the Seventh-day Baptist Sabbath recorder, December 28, 1908, but then it was reprinted in the Review and Herald, January 14, 1909. Now, let me show you something in the Bible. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 20. Let me, let me show you this. Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, I want you to see what God's mode was of how to have a successful church. If you want to know how to have a successful church, we don't need to borrow anything from Babylon. They have nothing to offer us. With all due respect, they just don't have anything to show us how to finish the work. But the Bible definitely does. Now, when we look at the Bible, you can see a clear lineup of how God showed how the church had tremendous success. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 20, and I want you to consider verse 17. Paul is getting ready to leave for Rome, and Paul is also getting ready to die. He knows, I'm more than likely not going to see you all anymore. But now the Bible says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called who? the elders of the church. Now, Paul was giving all these admonishments to the elders of the church. Look at what it says here now in verse 28. The admonishment that Paul gives to the elders of the church is he says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you what? Overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Paul 
as the minister was the one who would get the church started, but then Paul would go to other dark places. I heard a lot in Canada about dark places. Paul would go to the other dark places and get other churches started, and the elders were the ones that were designed to run the church. This is biblical gospel evangelism. This is the plan that God has set. And that's why when we look back at our early history, it was, we were so successful because we were following the biblical mode that brothers and sisters, non-seven-day Adventists wanted to interview us and understand our success. And it was not just the seven-day Baptist. There was also the plain dealer. It was, a, it was a newspaper article that existed also in the 1800s. And the, and the secular media was observing the growth of the Seventh-day Adventist church to the point that they had to interview us and understand what in the world are you all doing. I want you to notice what they said in their article. Look at what they said. The Seventh-day Adventist. This was there on their article. The Seventh-day Imagine that we were in New York Times. Imagine we were in Time Magazine. Imagine we were in any of these things. And I'm not talking about National Geographic. I'm going to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I just have different eyes than some people. Some people love to carry around that National Geographic because they say, look, we're number seven of the healthiest people in the world. Now, brothers and sisters, last I checked, God said Israel was to be the head and not the tail. Who are the six people that got more than what God has to give to Israel? That's how I think of things. I thank God that we can have some kind of influence, but brothers and sisters, Israel's supposed to be number one. Israel's supposed to be the head. And that's why you got more people going to New Ages than Seventh-day Adventists to know how to get well. And we go ahead and we'll buy their DVDs and play Forks Over Knives. We had Forks Over Knives over 100 years ago. It was called Councils on Diets and Foods. Forks Over Knives is late, brothers and sisters. Are you following? Oh, if we could only understand what we have. We were called to be the head, not the tail. Right here, that shows me head. You know what? Look at this. Seventh-day Baptists are interviewing us, but notice what it says next now. Okay, wake up now. Go ahead and hit that for me, please. Just hit play. It'll bring this screen right back up. Now, look at what they said here. Thank you. It says, some facts and figures gathered from Elder Star. Elder Star was one of those conference uh, regional presidents that was in our church. And I want you to see what just a region was doing. Look at this. It says, some facts and figures gathered from Elder Star, how they have grown in 40 years and what they believe. Look at what Elder Star said. This is deep. By what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? That's what they were asking, Seventh-day Adventists. Look at the answer. Well, in the first place, replied the elder, we have no settled pastors. Notice his answer. We have no what? Settled pastors. It says, our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. If we're going to experience revival and reformation, we got to get back to this. If we keep talking revival and reformation, brothers and sisters, it's not going to happen until we get back on the blueprint. God is going to get what he wants. We have to cooperate with him. Are you following? Notice, the Kalamazoo Telegraph. In the Kalamazoo Telegraph, look at what it says here. It says, talking about D.M. Canwright, it says, in the quotation taken from the Kalamazoo Telegraph, we find this statement. 
It says, at a time he dis at times he dissolved his con connection with them, talking about the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it says he had the charge of 18 churches in Michigan. Did you know one pastor had a charge of 18 churches at one time? Then it says, the facts in the case are these. Seventh-day Adventist churches maintain their regular worship without the assistance of any located pastors. Do you see this? It goes on to say, leaving our entire ministry free to act as evangelists in new fields. It says, as a consequence, many of our churches pass long periods without any preaching, and consequently, conference committees aim to arrange the labor in the states so that ministers will occasionally be at liberty to visit the churches to help and encourage them in Christian life by a few meetings. Do you see this? So that means that there needs to be an education both from leadership to laity. The leadership needs to let go. They need to let the people in the church flap their wings. There must be a guidance, there must be a structure, and that's why you have good elders. But the church, brothers and sisters, you got to let your leaders go. There are a lot of people who often say, oh, I, I, we can't function without somebody over us and lording us. But God says, no, you need to learn how to take care of yourselves. Let the elders run the church. Let the pastors go into the new fields and open up new fields. Brothers and sisters, this is biblical evangelism. We got to get back to that. If we keep talking revival and reformation and we keep leaving it as something abstract and up top that does not have any true substance, brothers and sisters, we're going to be talking revival and reformation for the next few years. Notice, A.G. Daniels, we have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. If some of the very large churches we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have helped ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and, care forward their, and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. It is possible. And people say, well, all these pioneers said, but what does Ellen White say? Well, this is what Ellen White says. Our ministers are not to hover over the churches, regarding the churches in some particular place as their special care. And our churches should not feel jealous and neglected if they do not receive ministerial labor. They should themselves take up the burden and labor most earnestly for souls. Believers are to have root in themselves, striking firm root in Christ that they may bear fruit to his glory. And so you find that this was one of the reasons why God gave us so much success. Now, I'm going to close on this last picture here because I want you to see how God shows. I want you to show you a picture of a successful church back in these days that caught the attention of secular media and other religions. Notice what it says. I see you with the paper, Brother Jehu. I already know. Watch this. It says, after it tells us we have no settled pastors and so on, right? After it says that, here's the next quote. The next quote says, this was the plan. This is what they did. Besides these, we send out large numbers of call porters. You mean to tell me churches were hiring large numbers of call porters? How many churches in Canada are hiring large numbers of call porters? Revival and reformation. Are you following? Do you want to be a successful church? Do you really want to finish the work? Do you understand that the finishing of the work is not only Christ in us and victory over sin, but it's also going about doing good through teaching, preaching, healing? Do you see that? But brothers and sisters, do you see the mold that God gave to our early pioneers on how they were successful? 
Do you believe we need to follow in the same pattern? Yes. Now watch this. Besides these, we send out large numbers of cold porters with our tracts and books who visit the families and teach them the Bible. Last year, we employed about 125 in this manner. 125 call porters hired, actually getting paid. Look what it says. Bible reading is another class of work. The workers go from house to house holding Bible readings with from 1 to 20 individuals. So outside of cult porters, they also had Bible workers. Are you following? And in those Bible workers, it says, last year they gave 10,000 of such Bible readings. In one year, 10,000 Bible studies were done by Bible workers in just one section of a conference. It goes on to say, at the same time, we had employed about 300 canvassers. It says, constantly canvassing the country and selling our larger works. So they had call porters doing a specific assignment. Then they had Bible workers doing another assignment. Then they had canvassers doing a whole different assignment. The conferences were putting their money in them. Let's go on. It doesn't stop here. It gets sweeter. In addition to this, every church has a missionary society, MV, missionary volunteer, almost unheard of today. It goes on to say, last year, these number 10,500 members. Every one of these members does more or less missionary work, such as selling books, loaning or giving away tracts, obtaining subscriptions to our periodicals, visiting families, looking after the poor, aiding the sick, etc. Last year, they made 102,000 visits, one year. 102,000 visits, wrote 40,000 letters, obtained 38,700 subscriptions to our periodicals, distributed 15,500,000 pages of reading matter and 1,600,000 periodicals. It's a working church. It's a working church. I just want to give you a picture of what it looked like. Goes on to tell us. What we need is an inspired solution to the inspired problem. And the inspired solution to the inspired problem is so simple. You see, we have a problem today because we're not doing a lot of these works that was done that gave us the success. In those days, the Seventh-day Adventist church was growing by 400%. We're not growing anywhere near those numbers now, especially in North America. God says, I can change that if you get back on the what? Blueprint. So what's the inspired solution to the inspired problem? The church needs revival and reformation. We need to get back to the blueprint and so on and so forth. What's the inspired solution to the inspired problem? It's very simple. Notice. To my ministering brethren, I would say, prosecute this work with tact and ability. Set to work the young men and the young women in our churches. Are there young men and young women here? Set to work the young men and the young women where? In our churches. Now, notice how God tells us specifically what to do. He says, combine the medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. Can you imagine that? God is leaving no room for guessing. He's telling us what to do. What do you do with the young people? You combine the young men, you combine the young women. What are you teaching them? You're going to teach them medical missionary work, and you're going to teach them the third angel's message. How much clearer can it be? What do we do with this? It says, make regular, organized effort to lift the churches out of the what? 
dead level into which they have fallen and have remained for years. You see, that's why I told that uh, dear conference president and his group, that's why I told them I said the churches are dead. I've learned ministers don't say what inspiration doesn't say. Ministers are only supposed to say what inspiration says. Inspiration says the churches have been in the dead level. And so it is that that's why we need a revival. But she says, get the young men, get the young women together. She says, combine medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. Make regular, organized effort to lift the churches out of the dead level into which they have fallen and have remained for years. Send into the churches workers who will set the principles of health reform in their connection with the third angel's message before every family and individual. Specific instruction. I wonder what happens if we did this. What if we just cooperated with Jesus, laid aside all of our ideas and our own plans and our own concepts? What if we just blindly followed what Jesus says? I wonder what would happen. Would you like to know what would happen? Encourage all to take a part in work for their fellow men and see if what will happen. The breath of life will not quickly return to these churches. You know what that sounds like to me? Revival. Brothers and sisters, I have no jokes to tell you. I have no special ways that I act or charismatic movements or statements. I just want to give you the plain statements of God. If we just did it, I believe that that's God's greatest struggle with us as his people. We keep coming up with our own ideas. God says, I already told you what to do to bring the breath of life back in my churches. We are losing our young people. We're losing adults. Why? Because we're not following what God said. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you the truth. We can come up with a billion different ideas. God is going to get what he wants. And if he has to let ministry shut down, he's going to do it. Doesn't want to do it. We have an opportunity to get on board. Brothers and sisters, God says, I can finish this work. I just need to find some people who are willing to do what I say. And so my appeal is very simple. How many of you are willing to say, Lord, tried all sorts of ideas. I'm doing all sorts of things. Now, if you're on God's blueprint, then praise God. But if you know you're not, if you know you're not, how many of you are willing honestly to say, Father, you know what? Your word's not going to change. So therefore, I think I need to change. How many of us are willing to say, Lord, I'm going to cooperate with you? And now we're not just going to say it, we're actually going to demonstrate it. No longer my will. Thy will be done. It's time to get on your blueprint. How many of us are willing to cooperate with Jesus like that? And if you are, would you stand to your feet? You're being honest with God. You're saying, look, Lord, things have got to change. Things have got to change. And I'm serious. There's some of us in here who might be in pastoral leadership. And if you've been hovering over the churches years after years after years, you got to let your members spread their wings. You got to let your elders lead and you need to get out into the dark fields and become what we were supposed to be. All of our ministers are called to be missionaries, evangelists. Go. I believe with all of my heart, if we get back on this blueprint, brothers and sisters, we'll see a tremendous change and we'll experience true revival and true reformation, not only as individuals, but even within God's churches.
With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Trust Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, dear God, that these feeble efforts of preaching. I thank you that your spirit has spoken to hearts. There's much more to study, Lord, and as usual, there's very little time. We pray that you'll please give us strength, give us wisdom, show us how to go forward, Lord. Help us to be about our Father's business, to get back onto your blueprint, and to finish the work. This is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for this, Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.